to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Adrian Guest, along with my co-host, Devin Dito. Today is May 8th, 2021, and this is weekly roundup number 16. And as always, Devin, we have plenty of news to go over, so let's get right into it. So listeners, our first segment, topic one, we saw an interesting story out of Louisiana um, that's just, just silly. I mean, you know, we, you know, Devin, we've done so many conversations about uh, racism, about slavery, uh, about how embedded, you know, racism is within our culture here in America. But this lady uh, in out of New Orleans is just, she, she used to go back and listen to our, uh, our inventory of episodes and get some education. But listeners, just to give you a little information, uh, the lady's name is Martha Huckabay. She's the president of the Women's Republican Club of New Orleans. She came up with something that's an interesting take on U.S. history. She basically saying that um, slavery isn't that bad. She said that, you know, how how do we know that slavery wasn't that bad? Because we weren't around to see it. Um, She talks about how, you know, some of them weren't treated, you know, that bad. Uh, The Bible says that they weren't treated that bad. Um, it, it's it's just really interesting, Devin, that you've got somebody who is living, you know, almost like a falsehood, um, talking about how racism, or rather how slavery, it may not have been that bad. It's, it, you know, we could, you know, talk about it and, and mention how, you know, some of the slaves were treated well, some of them got to sleep in the house, you know, the, the, the master made sure they had a place to stay and they had food and well, you know, that's just crazy to try to uh, have any sort of uh, sense that slavery was OK and that, but you know, maybe in the Bible it says some things. But there's a lot of things that that are kind of conflated and you can kind of twist the words and a lot of people use the Bible the way they want to. So, Devin, I don't, I don't know how you feel about this, but uh, I'm going to say Martha needs to she may need to you know close her mouth a little bit. <laughs> uh, close her mouth yes uh she you know maybe she was trying to make it i don't know if she was trying to make a joke or um you know maybe you know i'm not sure what martha was trying to do there but i don't think there's a you, you can that cannot be the bar um to figuring out whether or not slavery was good or bad is that well we weren't there to know so how do we know that wasn't a good <laughs> slavery um I don't, I don't know of, um, you know, what's good about snatching somebody from their continent, bringing them over here, stripping away their names, their religions, their families. Like you, you can dig and maybe they will convince themselves, they being people like Martha, um, they can dig and try to find the good parts of slavery. Um, but it's kind of rich for a, a, a white woman in America to say that, well, how do we know that there wasn't a good part of slavery or good sides of slavery because we weren't there? How do we know? It's like willful ignorance. Like, And it goes and, back to what you said, Devin, about the fact that a lot of people aren't taught it the correct way. When we talk about it in schools, it's just like you just you, we almost just graze over the fact that slavery is a part of America. And we graze over the fact that, you know, we had a civil war about it. I mean, we it had everything to do with slavery and and we don't really talk about it. We just mentioned how, you know, people were you know brought over here. We mentioned a little bit about how it was bad on the ships, what they got here. And, you know, they started working and some of the masters were good. Some of the masters were bad. And then whenever the Emancipation Proclamation happened, they were free and they could go and do whatever they want. Exactly. And I think, you know, some of it, you know, we were talking about this yesterday. You know, if I if I was a a white person in the United States, I probably wouldn't want the full story or the real story about slavery being told, because it does make you really question what kind of people or person could do that to other human beings. Like, you know, people just want us to get over slavery. Right. Well, you know, they didn't get over it when they supposedly freed the slaves. They had black codes and vagrancy laws and, and you know, then the case, the client came and birth of the nation and then you get Jim Crow and and so the 
the country itself has not really been able to in 2021. Um, you know, it's they would just rather put it in the closet and not talk about it. But, you know, it's and like you say, in the textbooks, they want to present the image. Well, you know, the slaves were just in the field singing songs, singing the Negro spirituals, just as happy as could be that they had their masters. <laughs> and and uh, I mean, sure, there may have been some slaves out there who did love their masters and, and did sing spirituals and things like that. But for the majority overwhelming overwhelming majority were out there against their will working for free and they weren't singing right. those spirituals because they were like praising their their masters they were singing those no. because they were trying to get through the day and get through all the crap they were having to face get through the fact that they had lost their dignity people were trying to take their humanity away from them it was I, I mean people talk about those spirituals and say yeah they were just singing and making all that music and cheery and you know just cooking and cleaning and getting through the day but no that was that was a that was almost <laughs> like um you know, uh, 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 you know, therapeutic mechanism that they had to get, you know, to kind of cope with the fact that, you know, they were, you know, they were in, in bondage. I mean, yeah, like, what else do you expect them to do? They're, they are still human people. Like, yes, they stripped away, you know, their names and everything, but in their heads, they still had the knowledge and, and remembered what they had back home, um, you know, on the continent of Africa. That didn't just leave them you know, when they came to the United States or what was, you know, then the colonies. But um, I think, you know, it's funny because we don't do this with any other tragic event. We don't do this with, you know, the, 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 the bombs that were dropped on Japan. We don't do this with the Holocaust. We don't do this with Japanese internment camps in the, in the United States. We don't tell people, well, how do we know that those events weren't that bad? Cause nobody was actually there to see them. Like we don't do that to any other group of people except black people when we want to talk about slavery. You know, like it's, it's, I don't, you know, and, and it, to me, it's just more of that idea, that attitude that slavery wasn't that bad. And that's what we've taught a generation of children that slavery was so long ago. The effects of that have really gone away. And America is just all equal and perfect right now. Well, I wouldn't say perfect, but equal. And everybody is, is working. And, and that's just not true. And people like Martha will continue to sow this idea um, that we just need to get over it. You know, and, and that's what she's really saying. It's like, well, how do you know there's no good part? Um, what you're saying is you don't want to have a real conversation about what happened. You don't want to accept <laughs> that that is still impacting the country. <laughs> and that's fair. Because uh, I think a lot of people don't want to accept that because then people say, well, you know, I wasn't around during slavery, so I'm not responsible. You know, my parents and grandparents didn't own slaves, but, you know, because you it's, to. you know, <laughs> yeah, you don't have to because it is systemic. Uh, it's something that was passed down. You can't you, you can you can deny it, but you can't avoid it. So. Uh, yeah, so that's it's an interesting little uh, story for you, uh, listeners. We wanted to make sure yeah. to bring that to you and hope that we don't have more people like Martha out there. That's true. <laughs> I hope not. Um, so, yes, so moving on from, from Martha, we'll go from Martha in Louisiana to um, San Francisco, uh, which is trying to, to move the ball forward. So, um, the city of San Francisco has announced a plan to redirect about $3.7 million um, from its police budget to Black-owned businesses. And they said specifically uh, Black-owned businesses. And so uh, Mayor London Breed made the announcement in a statement on Wednesday, May 5th, saying across this country and in, in, in our city, we've seen how the Black community's economic growth and prosperity has historically and disrupted and marginalized. So this initiative will be an investment by the Office of Economic and Workforce Development and is a part of the city's Dreamkeeper initiative. And so um, 17, looks like Adrian, 17 Black-serving community organizations will receive funding to provide services and achieve improved economic development outcomes for African-American businesses, entrepreneurs, um, and the African-American and Black communities in San Francisco more broadly. And so, you know, Adrian, this is, you know, something we were hearing last year with the defund the police movement. This is kind of what we were talking about, reimagining, uh, maybe taking some funding away from the police department, because obviously, um, you know, just putting people in handcuffs and putting them in jail is not working. 
Um, and it's not only San Francisco. Um, we're seeing this in other parts of the country, too, where um, St. Louis, you know, they, we talked about their mayor a few episodes ago. Their new mayor is proposing a $4 million cut from the police department, and she's hoping to use that money, um, you know, to, to help out uh, different parts of the city. And so, uh, I don't know, Adrian, you know, it's, it's something we kind of heard about last year, this, this reimagining our police departments and really examining um, all the money that we're putting towards police, really thinking about are we getting the outcomes that we're paying all this money for? Um, and it looks like some cities is trying to say, well, maybe we can try to fix these problems you know, in a different way. No, I think that's a that's a fair point, Devin. I think it's something that we can't avoid at this point. Um, we've seen too many um, killings of black and brown people who are unarmed by police officers. We've seen too many of that to where there has to be some sort of um, you know 180 degree you know rewiring, shifting, reimagining how we do police. I. I like what San Francisco is doing, but I, you know, I almost don't like it. It's almost like pandering to the black community because of what's going on, but it's great that they're doing it. I'm hopeful that, you know, that what they do, it's great that they're investing it in, you know, black businesses, but, you know, if you're going to, you know, take money from the police, I mean, make sure some of that money goes to services where, you know, police don't need to be like, you know, whether they be in social workers, you know, healthcare workers, uh, therapists, you know, I don't know, people who help with drug addiction, the case may be. Um, I, like I said, it's great that they are investing it uh, to help, the, you know, the economic gap, you know, amongst black and brown communities in San Francisco. But I do hope since they are taking this money from, you know, their police department, that they actually, you know, invest a little bit of it towards, some of those services that police would do. And honestly, Devin, that's that's a take that I hope that we really see around the country is that, yeah, you can, you know, defund your police department, but make sure you, you know, sure up another sector within your uh, uh, within your community so that the police don't need to be there. So that way, by defunding them, you know, that's OK. You're not stripping them from something that's going to allow them to not be able to do the same sort of services. You're actually taking, you know, some of their services away from them and taking some of their money because they're not going to be doing those services. So they don't need that same level of funding. Whenever you talk about it like that, I think it makes sense and we can kind of sell it a little bit easier. But again, I mean, it's it's great that they're putting this money into the community to help with economic stuff. Uh, and I'm hopeful that they make sure that these things they're investing in are maybe some of the root causes of crime, like, you know, job opportunity, poverty, homelessness, drug addiction. Make sure you invest in those things and maybe in turn you'll see less uh, need for uh, police intervention. Exactly. And, I'm, and that's the ultimate goal is to try to get to a point where. You know, we don't need this heavy police presence in black neighborhoods all the time. Um, you know, maybe we can try to fight crime in a different way. Like, we're not saying we don't need police officers in black neighborhoods. But what we're saying is that uh, police officers do not grow businesses in neighborhoods. They don't, you know, provide prosperity to the folks in these neighborhoods. They're there to keep peace and, and to prevent um, or, or stop criminals when, after they, you know, commit an act of violence or something, um, but they do not solve poverty. The <laughs> police don't do that. Um, and that's going to take another, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, they don't. <laughs> I like that. We need, we need to put that on headline and use that as a quote for the episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, and, and that's, I mean, that's the, the, the truth of the matter is because, you know, the police have been patrolling the same neighborhoods in black cities uh, you know, for decades now. And those same neighborhoods have not advanced um, economically. And so you can have all the police you want. You can lock up all the black men um, and women that you want to, but these neighborhoods are not progressing. And so we have to try it a different way um, because we know where you find poverty, you're likely to find crime. And so we know that the unemployment rate in black neighborhoods is already typically much higher than other groups. Um, so we have to try, we have to try it a different way. What we tried in the 90s with locking everybody up 
yeah, crime went down, but our neighborhood's not any better. So that's that's the goal now is hopefully with San Francisco moving almost $4 million out of the police department into hopefully, like you say, black businesses and also some other services that help ensure that the police are not out there having to play therapists and mediators and, and be officers all at the same time um, when we could get other people who are more you know, adept in handling those situations better. <laughs> and they don't have guns in their hips, you know. <laughs> that's right. There are a lot more qualified people to handle that. And that's no that's no uh slight or no, you know, no, it's damage to the no. police to say that. It's just saying that there are people who went to school and got a lot of training to handle, you know, domestic violence, mental health issues, drug addiction. Uh, police don't they're as far as I'm I'm not a police officer, but as far as I know, their training uh doesn't really, you know, gear them towards those sort of issues. No, and, and we knew that talking to the officers from the Dallas Police Department. They understand officers nowadays are being asked to do far, far more than just regular what you would think is regular everyday police work. So I think, you know, it's it's I hope the movement continues. Um, not to deal, we don't, we're not trying to get rid of police. We're just trying to share some of the funding, find new ways to fix our neighborhoods. Well, I'll tell you what, Devin, uh, to kind of piggyback off of what you said, uh, Governor Brian Kemp in uh, Georgia, he's not going to let this movement continue. So, uh, excuse me, listeners, before we do our break here, just to give you a little before the break. Uh, Governor Kemp, he's already uh, signed a bill pretty much blocking this whole defund the police effort. Uh, so we won't be seeing any of this happening uh, in Georgia, Devin, where they're trying to reimagine their police. Governor Kemp says this is basically unfair to condemn and demonize police officers. The law that he signed is going to limit government's ability to cut funding by more than 5% a year. Um, and Atlanta and Athens, Clark County tried to do some of these things, but they kind of put them off. But it's unclear what the penalty would be for a government that defies the law. So we'll kind of, you know, keep your abreast to what's happening there. But yeah, Devin, it's interesting to see that things are happening in San Francisco where people are reimagining police, but you got a governor in Georgia who has pretty much stopped that whole uh, train. So listeners, we're going to let you take our, uh, let you take your first break here. And when we come back, we're going to get into our second segment. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, IG and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right. Welcome back, listeners. So we want to kind of get into our next uh, topic here. So our second segment. So our first story in this segment we kind of want to, you know, we want to talk about the economy. We do touch on, touch on this at least once a month just to give you an idea of, of how, you know, the, the economy, the state of the economy in, in America, but also in our community is looking. And, uh, it, you know, things are there. They're not where we want them to be, Adrian, but we're, it's a slow grind getting there. I mean, so we got some new numbers uh, this week about April's um, jobs numbers. And so, it's it's a mixed bag, Adrian. It's not what people thought it was. It was a huge letdown in April um, with non-farm payrolls increasing by way less than expected at 266,000 jobs added last month. Um, and the unemployment rate ticked up to 6.1% amid an, uh, an escalating shortage of available workers. And so um, again, Adrian, 266,000 jobs uh, many economists were expecting a, a huge number, somewhere around a million. Um, I think ADP was was projecting somewhere around 700,000. Um, but 266,000 is not what we wanted, especially after, uh, you know, the last stimulus bill that passed in March. People were expecting much better numbers. And just to add to this, um, the numbers for March, which were originally 916,000 jobs, was actually revised down to 770,000. And so, um, though February saw an upward revision from five to 536,000 jobs from 468,000. Um, however, 
even with the you know this less than less than expected jobs number, the stock market um, mildly reacted, didn't really go up or down necessarily. And, and the Federal Reserve, um, you know, is saying it's going to keep its ultra easy policies in place. Um, and so, while um, short, they're thinking this may be a short term phenomenon right now. Um, while average earnings actually jumped up, you know, from March, they were little changed year over year. Um, as low wage earners uh, return back to their jobs. So, um, Adrian, I don't know. You know, a lot of people are wondering why folks aren't going back to work. Everybody has their theory, but it's obvious between people not going back to work and, you know, I guess just the economy is not necessarily where we thought it was. You know, 266,000 jobs added in April um, is not what people expected at this point. Yeah, Devin, that's absolutely correct. I mean, you've got some industries like, you know, the hospitality industry that's adding some workers here, local government education, financial activities. You've got some different positions and uh, who are adding. You've got some sectors like manufacturing who are losing positions. Uh, and you've got some people who are even saying that it's a fault of the uh, heightened uh, unemployment benefits and different things like that. You've got some critics who said because the government gave a lot of people free money and checks and trying to extend unemployment that people are deciding to not you know go back to work. But you know I don't I don't I don't feel like that's the case. I mean we we see you know from our from whenever we did the reporting uh, on that story out of Stockton, California, where they gave that UBI to people, we we have direct research that says when you give people money, they don't just sit at the house and do nothing with it. So I definitely don't, you know, attribute to that. Even uh, Secretary uh, Walsh said that that, you know, it has little to do with unemployment insurance. You know, Devin, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that uh, people for a year got uncomfortable with going out in public, going, you know, sitting in closed spaces. And now you're asking them to go and return to normal and people aren't comfortable. Even even I mean, some people have gotten vaccinated. Some people haven't. And I think that that is probably the larger part. People aren't comfortable with that. And then the other thing, uh, I think I saw it on your uh, Facebook or Twitter is the fact that, you know, everybody can almost work remotely in, in a lot of industries. There's no point of having to, you know, go into an office and things like that. So I'm sure some people are probably looking for more opportunities to work remotely. You know, for the whole year, they were able to spend time with their family, play with their kids at home and maybe read and go back to school or whatever. So people are, are looking for alternatives to work that, that, that there aren't the norm that we had before. So maybe that is also why we're seeing some um, some some spot, um, downturn in our market. I'm not sure, but I'm hopeful that we'll be able to pick this thing back up, Devin. Yeah, and I, I think you know you, you're. I think you hit on some some points that are correct in that you know people may be a little hesitant to go back just because of COVID. Um, I think definitely, you know, like you say, stay at home work has become a, a big thing. I'm a big proponent of it, you know, um, and so. But I, I think also too. I think it's just an easy cop out to just say it's all because of the unemployment insurance, because, you know, even over the summer, we saw where things started to open up a little bit. People were going back to work. You know, they were they were getting unemployment, you know, um, assistance, but they were they were going back to work. I think what you have now is folks are saying, well, you know, like you say, you're not at home anymore. So that means your children are going to have to go to daycare or, or somewhere. While you go back to work, and if you were a low wage worker who had to pay a significant amount of your income towards childcare, um, yeah, you're not necessarily running back to go do that again. You know, considering you were you weren't making that much money beforehand, and we're struggling, and so mm-hmm. now it's like you're going to choose your next opportunity wisely, so that you can maybe find a position that's going to pay you enough to where you can afford childcare and not have to struggle, you know, to just survive. Or work from home. <laughs> you know, or or try to find something where you're working from home with your child or something like that. <clears throat> and look, I'm pretty sure there are folks who are just, hey, I'm gonna ride this unemployment assistance out. I mean yep. I mean, yeah, I'm sure there are some people like that. It's it, you would be naive to think that there weren't going to be people like that. <laughs> you know, like every system, every program is going to have folks that maybe, you know, supposedly abuse it or whatever. 
but I think the overwhelming majority are trying to search for an opportunity where they're going to be making more money than they were before so that they can afford to put their children in childcare um, and not be, you know, going back. Who runs back to go struggling to what they were doing before the pandemic? Like, I mean, come on, like, we got to be honest here. Nobody's ready to go back to sign and can make $9 an hour, <laughs> you know, and, and still go in and do that. So um, employers are just going to have to work harder to get their workers back. Um, but I already saw, you know, I think Arkansas has said it's going to opt out of the extra unemployment aid on top of the, you know, state unemployment assistance. So we could see more states try to do that to force people back to work. Um, but, AJ, you know, I don't know. I think we're, I think for a lot of people I know, for my folks, some folks, you know, a lot of people took this opportunity during the pandemic to change careers, you know, or just take a break from, from the day-to-day struggling paycheck-to-paycheck thing. I'm not surprised they don't necessarily want to run back out there and go through that again. <laughs> it's not surprising at all. I mean, I grew up with a mom who worked at McDonald's and she made less than $7.25 because back in the day, it was like four or five bucks an hour. And she struggled. I mean, we could never do anything. I mean, I remember having to, you know, every year when we get ready to get new clothes for school, I'd have to ask her, hey, do we have enough money to do that? Uh, I remember several times where we had to figure out, are we going to have money, you know, for food and stuff like that? But then you get a situation where the government's giving you assistance to help out with all that kind of stuff. Yeah, people are going to more likely want that and they may want to you know, take that for however long they can and maybe not go look for a job. Because like you said, that lifestyle, they've lived it so long, been there, done that, and they just want a little bit of peace. So I think, you know, Devin. Uh, it just goes to show that we've got to start hitting, you know, these root causes of issues, like, you know, why there's so many people who are unemployed, why people don't, you know, want to, you know, go in, you know, into the workforce. Maybe we have to do some investigation into the local job uh, opportunities there and see maybe they actually don't have good job opportunities. Maybe that's why people aren't looking for work. Right. And, and, I'll, and just the last thing I'll say, too, is just, you know, I think people are looking. I think they're waiting on the right job with the right pay, with the right benefits. I think for so long, it was you got a job just because you needed one out of necessity. But now that the government has provided, you know, so much in assistance, now you can be more decisive and really think about the type of job that you want to go back to. And so I think people are taking that opportunity to say, look, I don't want to I got a little bit in savings. I don't necessarily have to just take a job because it's a job. I can pick and choose the one that I want. Um, And so that's why I say employers are going to have to work for the first time in in getting their workers back. Up that pay. Up those benefits. You know, provide provide a living wage. You're right. (laughs) People want to work. You're absolutely right. I remember the article even referenced the fact that a lot of employers, that's what they're having to do. They're having to adapt and react and come up with better incentives to get people to come to work. I mean, that's that's just where you are today because people, uh, I mean, we're in a point where things change for our society for an entire year. And, and, and still, can, you know, that's continued for several states that haven't you know, opened up to full capacity. So we've got to you know, adapt and react you know, as, a, as a country and update our job force, uh, our job market, so that people can have opportunities. And, and that's honestly, Devin, and, and, I, and I know we're about to move on to our next subject here, but if, if we will do that, that's going to be so beneficial because a lot of states and a lot of rural areas like, you know, my hometown in Newport, Mississippi, they don't have job opportunities there. But if, if we could have a more robust, you know, uh, uh, job uh, opportunity program within our government to where we had more people working remotely, we met people where they are. You could have people who live in Mississippi, but work for a company in California and they're making, you know, 15 bucks an hour or whatever. Um, so I think that there are ways for us to tackle this issue and not demonize people because they're just trying to live and, and pay their bills. But our second topic here within our second segment, listeners, um, this is out of Idaho. So governor of Idaho has signed a bill 
that's going to ban the teaching of critical race theory in public schools. Some educators in the state are calling it unnecessary and a potential violation of free speech. The bill, H-377, prevents teachers from indoctrinating students into belief systems that claim that members of any race, sex, religion, ethnicity, or national origin are inferior or superior to other groups. Devin, (laughs) again, it's just people just trying to play down stuff that's true. Uh, Critical race theory, if you haven't heard of it, listeners, is a concept developed by academics and leading scholars of uh, uh, leading scholars that basically talk about the origins uh, of how our system of government were that were established. The theory states that racism is embodied both in U.S. history and modern American law. It holds that legal institutions in the U.S. are inherently racist. And I mean, we've talked about this several times, uh, listeners on our platform. Donald Trump, you know, of course, he's you know we don't like to talk about him too much, but he ordered federal agencies to stop racial sensitivity training and really stop this so-called critical race theory. So we've, 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 you know, kind of touched around this topic, Devin, because we've done some uh, reportings about the 1619 project. Uh, We've done reportings about how more and more school districts are starting to incorporate that into their curriculum, trying to incorporate uh, black lives matter uh, things into their curriculum. But we have seen these bans uh, take place like the one in Idaho. Uh, we, we're seeing them being drafted in other states like Iowa, Louisiana. Uh, we've even seen them being passed in states like Arkansas and Tennessee. But I just really hope that we get past this. Uh, a lot of people like Mitch McConnell think that this is d- uh, divisive uh, nonsense is basically how he says it. But it's really about acknowledging the fact of America. A lot of people think whenever you're talking about this, it's like, you know, you're harming the sense of patriotism or the love that you're supposed to have for your country when you talk about the, the, the what we did. But you're just telling the truth. I think whenever we talk about the truth of uh, and, and I always try to tell, you know, Devin, I always try to bridge it outside of just black you know, America. Talk about the truth of what, what our country did to Asian Americans or Asian immigrants. Talk to what we did to Native Americans. Talk to what we've done to you know, Latino communities, what we've done to the Muslim communities and and, and just broaden it out to say America has really treated minorities very poorly. And that's not to say that we hate America. I mean, I enjoy living here. I mean, I don't think that there's any other country that I would want to live in other than America because it's a land of opportunity. But in saying all of that, I still acknowledge, you know, unlike, you know, Senator Scott and our vice president, Kamala Harris, I acknowledge this is a racist country. Um, but we have so much more to offer than that, and we can grow from that and hopefully move on. But we don't move on if we don't start to educate our students about it and, and, and try to get you know future generations to be more accepted to you know talk about it. Right, just talk about it. <laughs> that's 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 all we're saying here. And look, if we had done a better job in teaching American history in our schools, we wouldn't need things like critical race theory <laughs> in the 1619 Project and, and all these other things that are, that are now coming about. Um, but they're only needed because we have convinced a generation of children that, you know, the country is just great. You know, the founders got together, started a new country, fought off the British. We had a civil war that wasn't about slavery. And, and we've miseducated people um, as far as the real history of this country. And we don't want to be honest about it. And look, you can do both. You can be both uh, proud of, of America and what it's become, but also talk about its flaws and where it comes up short and how it treats Black people. We can do both. <laughs> but they, you know, the, the, the Republican Party and conservatives are just so sensitive to any sort of criticism um, of America that the moment you say anything that's remotely, you know, not uplifting about the country, all of a sudden you hate it. You know, like black people are the, to me, the ones who really have a, a real um, excuse to hate this country because of how it's treated us. And you don't hear us saying that. You've never heard black people in mass say, we just hate America. <laughs> You've never heard that. We we want America to just do what they promised in the Constitution. <laughs> That's right. That's all. <laughs> just do that. 
but you know, because we could have been like, you know, f this. You know, you these guys created a country and, and didn't write the constitution with us in mind or everybody else. And so, um, you know, we didn't invent racism. You know, white people decided that they were going to subjugate us to being slaves and criminals and things like that. We didn't create this problem. Um, so the only way we're going to fix it is if we just be honest. And like you say, the Tim Scotts and the Kamala Harris's of the world, um, you know, we're still trying to dance around the question or at least dance around the answer. Um, our institutions are inherently racist. The criminal justice system is inherently racist. Look at the sentencing and how they hand sentence. Exactly. Out. Look at the, I mean, like, come on, people. Like, we, this is not by accident. Black people are not just more likely to be criminals because we're black. That's not, no, that's not how that happens. <laughs> Nothing scientific <laughs> about that. Not at all. But they want, but they're trying to convince us that the institutions um, are like that because of people's choices. Right. People's choices to be racist and say that black people are criminals and deserve to be sentenced more and locked up more and seen as more aggressive and violent at a younger age than their white counterparts. It's like Devin, I saw on, I saw on TV where they were talking about, you know, trans issues and how usually when they start talking about why transgender females or males shouldn't be in sports or the bathrooms, they always show transgender black, you know, students aside, you know, trans, you know, aside, you know, regular, you know, white students and saying, you know, we don't need these black transgenders with your white kids or anything like that. It's, it's it just, it's so interesting that whenever they, even, even whenever it's not, you know, focused on our community, it's so easy for them to go to the black, you know, people within, you know, whatever their issue is and demonize that just as a little, you know, I guess a familiar subject for them. Well, yeah, I mean, they got a blueprint of how to, you know, how to demonize people. They got hundreds of years of doing that. To us. So, but no, I mean, that's that's how it is. We always end up on the short end of whatever, you know, controversy or whatever, you know, they get banning things like this or passing voting restriction bills. And, and we always end up on the, on the craft end of it. And so, uh, you know, people... Get back to my script here. But people, you know, I, I think we can do both. We can be honest about America itself and also still, like you say, believe in the ideals of it and, and understand that we do live in a great country where you have more opportunities than anywhere else. But understand, too, that that opportunity is uneven in how it's distributed. And so that is that is the fight we continue to fight um, and where we're trying to get to is even opportunity, not outcomes just opportunity that's it exactly that's all we're asking for just give us an opportunity and at that point you can say it's it's your fault if you didn't take the opportunity but uh devin uh before we do our break here let's do a little uh before the break here talking about improving hbcus and i gotta give a little credit to senator uh tim scott because he's actually uh doing some 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 good things i guess here I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So listeners, just to let you know, there's a bipartisan bill that's co-sponsored by Senator Tim Scott and Representative Alma Adams, which would which would direct money to renovate and modernize buildings at more than 100 of the nation's historically black colleges and universities or HBCUs, in case you don't know. Uh, but Scott and Adams, who were both professors at Bennett's College, um, they've been working on this. It's called Ignite HBCU Excellence Act. So we're hoping to see this pass and hoping to see the great things that will happen. Because, Devin, you know, we talked to all of our HBCU presidents and we know that they do need money with renovating their campuses, modernizing their buildings. A lot of this money is going to go towards high speed Internet and support for virtual teaching, which is going to become a new thing for a lot of colleges after the pandemic. So. Uh, again, you know, I know we talked a little bit about uh, uh, Senator Scott, but thank you, uh, Senator Scott, if you're listening, for uh, being on the right side of history. Uh, finally, but but hey, we'll 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 ease off of Senator Scott and listeners. We're going to give you another break, so stick with us. We'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to a scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, go to patron.podbean.com 
forward slash Black Agenda Pod. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into our third segment here, topic one. We wanted to talk about Liz Cheney. Uh, she's been in the news a lot lately. She's been getting talked about, Devin. Uh, and it's sad because the Republican Party is just kicking her to the curb and saying, hey, we like Donald Trump and we like his foolishness over uh, Liz Cheney's competence. You've got the number two House Republican that came out Wednesday uh, and, and really said that he would like to have Liz Cheney removed. Um, they've already started, you know, looking at a num- uh, an option. Uh, I think the lady uh, Stefanik, I can't remember her first name, but Representative Stefanik, uh, she's been looked at as a person to kind of uh, be Liz Cheney's replacement. Even Donald Trump has come out to endorse uh, that replacement for Liz Cheney. But it, Devin, it all comes down to the fact that uh, Liz Cheney is basically saying, I'm not going to stand up for the insurrection, I'm not going to stand up for the fact that we had a president try to steal the election and, you know, get us to not certify the votes of the Electoral College. Uh, it, that's what it comes down to. Um, but you've got a lot of people in leadership like the number two. And then, of course, you've got Kevin McCarthy. Uh, who basically uh, has come out and said that he doesn't really believe in her ability to carry out her job. Uh, They even played on MSNBC, Devin, uh, when he didn't realize his mic was still alive. Some of the comments where he was just like, he was pretty much tired with her. He was, you know, tired of dealing with her. Um, That, you know, she needs to basically, you know, drink the Kool-Aid and and get on one accord. But, you know, Devin, the, the larger picture of this is that the Republican Party has an issue with appealing to women. I mean, especially if you think about what Donald Trump did for them and women. And you've got, you know, Liz Cheney, the highest ranking woman in the GOP. They're trying to remove her and maybe replace her with another woman. So at least there's that. But, and, you know, I just feel like the reason they're doing it is so wrong. And I mean, they're not going to care about it. They're, hey, you know, they've already come out and and, and endorsed Trump. They already come out and said that they're going to be behind him. That's their guy. That's their man. Um, but it's so sad to see that they're letting this happen uh, and, and not really helping to move our country forward. Because, you know, you, you can't have this whole kumbaya moment that they keep saying that they need to have with the Democrats if you've got people who don't believe in truth and you're kicking out those people who are actually the most competent people in the room. Yeah, that you're, you're spot on. I mean, it is bizarre what's happening with, uh, you know, the current Republican party. I mean, they are essentially, they're making the decision to say, Hey, we're going to go with the lie instead of truth. It's easier for us. They feel like politically, it's better for them to go with just pushing this lie. And they've sold their soul to Donald Trump um, because he was able to do something that most Republican candidates couldn't do. He got the most votes by a loser in history <laughs> and, and and carried more of the black vote than uh, past candidates. And I think that's all they're focused on is trying to get back in power. That's all this is about. They think Donald Trump is their path to being back in power, to being back in the White House and Congress. And, you know, they're going to try to do that, irregardless of how that affects the country or the people that vote for them. Because you cannot look at this and just say, yeah, this is a good, this is for the good of the country. This is not. <laughs> if they were worried about the good of the country, like you said, they would be trying to actually rally behind the Joe Biden and actually work with Joe Biden to get things done. And when you have Mitch McConnell coming out and saying that 100 percent of his effort um, is focused on stopping the current administration, then forget unity or, or cooperation. Um, they're just flatly focused on trying to get back into power um, in, in 2022. And, and this is our politics now. Nobody works together anymore. The incentive is, hey, we'll be out of power for a couple of years. Well, and we'll try to get back in power. We're not going to work with the current administration. Um, and it's just sad. It really is sad to see how much of a stranglehold Donald Trump still has on the party. Like you, you do have Republican senators trying to whitewash and explain the way that the, the insurrection. <laughs> they want to tell us that these people were somehow patriots. <laughs> like, 
if they had gotten their way, they could have killed or hurt a member of Congress and the Republicans still would have been like, well, you know, he just got out of hand. It right. was, they didn't mean to do that. It like, wasn't Donald Trump's fault. He didn't tell them yeah. to go do anything. I mean, he didn't explicitly <laughs> say the words "go hurt or kill Nancy Pelosi." Like, right? It's just silly. <laughs> I mean, you got Lindsey Graham who said, uh, I think it was on Fox News, that you know the the GOP is is dependent on, upon Donald Trump. He said the GOP can't move That's on insane. without Donald Trump, and, and that is insane because Donald Trump's not on the ballot in twenty twenty two. And I hope that he's not going to be on the ballot in 2024. But even still, the, the things that he uh, perpetrated uh, were not what we need on a uh, on a national level or global level. I mean, yeah, you could say maybe he uh, was great about making other countries pay their fair share on the global stage. I'll give him that. That was a nice thing because, yeah, America does pay too much and not get enough support from other countries. So, yeah, that's good. But the way he did it was terrible. I mean, you, you look at all the summits he went to of him pushing all of the world leaders around. I mean, I, I, you know, we, we learn in church there's a right way to do thing, uh, do things, and when you do th- uh, things the wrong way, you can make it wrong. So um, I don't know, Devin. There's a, a whole uh, independence, or rather, dependence they have on him that I hope that they can get away from. Yeah, I'm hoping so, too. And, and, you know, I just last before we go, we should have known that the Republican Party, uh, you know, was kind of the party of Donald Trump. You remember last year when we were doing the conventions, the Republican Party did not put up a convention. I mean, a, a, a party platform. They essentially just regurgitated what they did four years prior. It was nothing new. It was just whatever Donald Trump said, that was the party platform. So that's kind of when you you knew that, there were no original ideas coming out of the Republican Party. It was all Donald Trump. They had tied their their horse to him. Um, and, and and that's why, you know, I we always talk about people, you know, black people always give their votes to Democrats. But, um, you know, to me, the Republican Party doesn't govern anymore. <laughs> they don't do anything anymore. They're not even in Congress to vote and try to make things better. They're just there to say uh, no. They're just there to fight culture wars. And and now they're just the party of whatever Donald Trump says goes. We're just going to go with that. And it's just kind of spineless, just kind of weak, you know, for a party that pitches itself as being supposed patriots. <laughs> but they're bowing down to a businessman who lost. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so, uh, you know, enough about Trump. We haven't talked about him in a while, but it is nice to go back and kind of give you an update on what's happening with the Republican Party. Um, and Donald Trump. So we're going to go from politics to now we're going to go to COVID um, and obesity. So interestingly enough, we all are familiar with COVID-19, um, but there's a new phenomenon out there called COVID-15, um, which is underscoring a reality that we've known for, for a while now, which is that obesity is not a silent killer in Black America. You know, it is front and center. And so many Americans have gained a, a lot of weight um, during the coronavirus outbreak and quarantine. And so the phenomenon is now being called COVID-15, which is a play on the freshman 15, which you get in college, which I'm very familiar with because I got it. Um, and so uh, the, the COVID-15 phenomenon is just unexpected weight gain during, um, you know, the, the COVID pandemic. And so this is according to a recent survey conducted by the American Psych- Psychological Association, reported 61%, 61% of Americans reported undesired weight gain or loss since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. And so one of the things that really kind of um, factors into your weight gain or loss is stress. So stress significantly impacts the body's ability to maintain a healthy weight. And those extra pounds you gained this year might be impacting your health, especially if you weren't at a healthy weight to begin with. And so four in 10 Americans, which told us about 100 million people are obese, according to the CDC. And among African-American adults, nearly 48% are clinically obese compared with 32.6% of whites. So um, again, according to the National Institute of Health, adults who gain more than 11 pounds in a year are twice as likely to develop type 2 diabetes 
uh, mellitus and coronary heart disease. And those who gain more than 24 pounds are one and a half times more likely to experience um, an uh, isomic stroke. And so um, even more obesity today often means obesity tomorrow. The influences of of genetics in our family, um, environment on our body uh, have a generational impact. And so, you know, Angie and I know I'm familiar with the COVID-15. I'm, you know, I'm, I picked up a little bit. I tried to get active toward the end of uh, quarantine, and I've been back active now. But I can definitely, um, you know, relate <laughs> to having a few extra pounds there when when the the quarantine went into effect, and I was at home, not moving around like I usually do. No, I think that that's right. I mean, that's how most people were doing, Deborah. I mean, everybody was well, well, not everybody, but a majority of people shifted to working from home. So you're sitting at home all day for eight hours. And then after that, you get dinner going and maybe you work out, maybe you don't because your gym isn't open. So, yeah, that was something to almost be expected that we were going to see that. But it's like it just goes to show that we've got to react to it. You know, you know, all these issues that are happening, you know, because of the pandemic, they were already issues. It's just we've got to, you know, actually, you know, stop putting Band-Aids on them and address the issues. Uh, that's been the issue that we've got going on. If we could, you know, work with you know, making sure that there's adequate groceries within our communities and stuff like that, uh, maybe g- give some sort of um, after school programs in, in minority communities to make sure kids are playing uh, rather than video games. Uh, there's a lot of different things we can do to affect these lifestyle choices, as well as some of these institutional things that we've got going on to give black and brown communities a better opportunity to have healthier lifestyles. That's what we're asking for at the end of the day. It's just uh, opportunity again, to have a healthier lifestyle, which everybody in America wants. Exactly. Exactly. We got to put the work in now. Quarantine is pretty much over for most of us. Um, So now we got to get back in the gym and knock those pounds off um, and try to get back to, you know, a healthy weight. So, um, so we'll leave it there with, with uh, the COVID-15, and we're going to take our, our last break before our quick hits. And before we go, we have another little nugget, interesting story here. Um, and this is pretty big news out of Atlanta. Um, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms has announced that she is not going to seek re-election for office after just one term. Um, and so she first announced this um, Thursday night during a private phone call with her staff, supporters, friends, and she confirmed the news during a press conference on Friday morning. And so uh, she said, quote, in the same way that it was abundantly clear to me to almost five years ago that she that I should run for mayor of Atlanta. It is abundantly clear to me today that it, it is time to pass the baton on to someone else. And so um, news of her decision to not run for a second term likely comes as a surprise to many people. Who considering that she turned down the chance to serve in President Biden's cabinet and announced her bid uh, for re-election. And so um, interesting news there out of Atlanta, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms will not uh, seek a second term. So uh, chew on that while we, we do our break and we're going to come back with our quick hits. So stick with us. We'll be right back. have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guess and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. Welcome back, listeners. So we're going to end the show like we always do with our quick hits, which is some funny, interesting, uh, maybe even weird news that you may not have heard about from this past week. And so uh, let's get into it. So our very first story here um, is going to come out of New York. And it looks like uh, the story here, New York college professor Ari Nigel has fathered more than 80 children. He has more on the way. So the 44-year-old educator... It's made headlines in the past for his frequent sperm donations, which has earned him the nickname, the Sperminator. 
from past Uh, a life update and a new interview with Dr. Um, that was shared to Twitter on Tuesday. Um, the pair briefly discussed the 77 children that Mr. Nagel has fathered. So far, he's 77 children. That's true. But then you have seven. Uh, for them, it's about them having their first child or their second child child because on me you, they want to have a family and so uh, there you have it i mean mr nagel there he's a he's a college professor in new york he is the sperminator he has fathered more than 80 children and of 80 kids that's wow he, he earned the term uh the sperminator for sure. <laughs> That's funny, Devin. I, I have an uncle who is a Rolling Stone. He's 74 now. And I want to say he's got about 50 to 60 kids. So he's he's up there. Oh, guess, my God. He, he's not donating sperm. So I guess he doesn't have the, the title of Sperminator. But he, he was just a Rolling Stone, uh, like the Temptations would say. He, did, he donated sperm just in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. In the old-fashioned way. Exactly. The, the, the tried and truth. <laughs> All right. Now, they take you to uh, Virginia, so a little south of New York. Um, here's a, this is a story out of Red Lobster. So there's a Red Lobster restaurant in Virginia that gave, uh, I guess, a stay of execution to a rare lobster breed. It was a Colico uh, lobster that they saw. Uh, and the lobster's <laughs> Colico coloring is caused by a rare mutation that's found in an estimated one in 30 million lobsters. So this lobster was really, really rare and got lucky because it didn't get eaten. But the restaurant chain said employees saw uh, the lobster and said that it was too rare to end up on a dinner plate. The red lobster has nicknamed the lobster Freckles and said that the invertebrate will live out the rest of its life at the Virginia Living Museum. So don't have to worry about freckles being on your dinner plate because uh, he's extremely rare. Uh, one in 30 million, Devin. Wow. One in 30 million. That's pretty incredible. Um, I'm glad they, 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 you know, saved his life there. Hopefully he gets to live a very fulfilling life. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, our next story here, we're, we're going to take you up to Michigan, um, where there's a man who reportedly retaliated against his neighbor by uh, with a cow with cow dung, cow manure, basically. So the man's name is Wayne Lambard. He is the neighbor who claims a 250 foot wall of manure was erected following a property line dispute he had with a fellow farm owner last year. So the unusual divider separates the two properties in Lodi Township, which is a civil township situated inside uh, Washtenaw County, uh, Michigan. And so um, weird story there. Let me get the rest of it. So aside from serving as a physical divider, um, Lambarth and his tenants told Fox 2 the manure walls come with a powerful stench. Um, the farmer who built the wall, whose identity has remained anonymous, denied the organic structure is a poop wall. He says it's a it's a compost fence. It's a little <laughs> a little public relations there. Um, and, and just for those who may not know, composting is the act of adding organic material to soil to help plants grow, which can include um, food or yard waste. So he says it's a compost wall. They say it's a cow manure wall, Adrian. I don't know about you. Either way, the thing smells horrible, horrible. I don't think I would care if it's manure or compost. Um, I would be furious if, if my neighbor did that to me. Exactly. Just put up a regular fence or something. <laughs> That's all you got to do. There are other ways to get around that. Now, this, uh, listeners, is an interesting story. Uh, looks like this is out of Illinois. 12-year-old kid out of Illinois said shortages of medical supplies during COVID-19 inspired him to design his own ventilator using Lego pieces, which I, I I didn't know you could even do that, but I guess Lego pieces are really interesting. 
but his name is Anthony. Uh, he's a seventh grader and he was doing a project to really help out with this, where he's working with the Lego Mindstream EV3 robotics kit. So that's interesting, Devin. Legos actually has robotics kits, so that's why he's able to do this. But he entered the creation uh, in a contest. Unfortunately, he didn't win the contest, but he earned a lot of praise from the event organizers. Anthony says he hopes to partner with Lego to make his ventilator something that will be available to medical professionals in rural areas. So, Devin, uh, if it's any uh, will of Anthony, we may see Lego ventilators in rural Mississippi or something. That would be pretty darn cool. That's actually pretty awesome. <laughs> uh, I wish I had a, a Lego robotics kit. That's, cool. <laughs> That's right. Uh, <laughs> so um, our, our next story here, uh, this comes from Amazon. And so no one was more surprised. This is a story here. No one was more surprised than Jennifer Bryant when she was alerted that her four-year-old son, Noah, had ordered 51 cases of SpongeBob SquarePants popsicles through her Amazon account. <laughs> so <laughs> Mr. Noah here ordered them, but he had them shipped to his auntie's house. And his love of SpongeBob is what prompted him to order the cases, which contain about 918 individual popsicles at a total cost of $2,618. And, and <laughs> because of the nature of the item, Amazon would not take back the popsicles. So they're just kind of stuck with them. Um, and so as a full-time student at New York University and a mom to three boys, uh, Jennifer Bryan had no idea how she would fund her son's innocent order. So she made a, a post to an NYU student Facebook page. And so a classmate of hers saw the post and immediately texted her friend asking if um, she could Venmo a donation. And they set up a GoFundMe account. And uh, needless to say, <laughs> um, they posted a story to Instagram, um, you know, with her permission. And uh, let me move on here. And in 24 hours, it looks like, the full cost of the popsicles have been raised. And in three days, they had raised more than $7,000 that had been contributed by more than 200 people. And so in an update, uh, Jennifer Bryant wrote that as a parent to a child living with ASD, uh, which is autism spectrum disorder, all additional donations will go towards Noah's education and additional supports. And so a funny story that had a good ending to it. Um, you know, she's better than me. I would have... <laughs> I would have had to Noah out on the street selling those SpongeBob popsicles, buddy. Better start a business with that. <laughs> you got that right. Because that's, um, I like popsicles, but not that much. Not even close. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now, listeners, to go ahead and end our quick hits here, this is a story about space wine. So there's an auction house called Christie's that announced a bottle of French wine that spent about a year aging in the International Space Station is expected to sell for about a million dollars. Uh, they actually have a bottle that's kind of a compliment that they're going to also sell with it that age for the same amount of time. So that way, whoever gets it can actually have a more authentic taste between one that's aged in space and one that's aged on Earth. But it looks like the bottle spent nearly 440 days on the space station. Uh, and they are going to be selling it. it. says that the bottle has a unique flavor profile. So I don't know what it is about space and you know less gravity, but I guess it does something different to wine. Uh, the sale also includes a decanter, glasses, and a corkscrew made from a meteorite. So uh, you do get something extra there. And it looks like the uh, wine bottle is available for immediate sale if you're uh, if you got a million bucks, I guess. Yeah, I got a million dollars to just come up uh, to buy a wine bottle. <laughs> uh, it better be good. That's all I know. Exactly. It better be. be. Out of this world. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. They, hey, they probably use that for their branding. <laughs> they probably did. <laughs> they probably did. Uh, but yeah, I guess that's going to do it for our uh, quick hits. That's going to do it for the show. Uh, again, we appreciate you all sticking with us throughout this thing. We, we love bringing you all the news, funny news, some serious news. 
um, and give you our opinions and, and thoughts on what's happening in the world around us. And, uh, before we wrap it up here, we do like to let you know what's upcoming on the podcast. So um, our next episode will be coming up this upcoming Tuesday, and that's going to be all about campaign finance reform. And so um, this topic is really important as it speaks to who controls our political leaders, who's in their pockets. Uh, we will have two guests um, from the Brennan Center of Justice on the show to educate and motivate us on this issue. So join us this upcoming Tuesday. And then, of course, we'll be back again next week, next Saturday, uh, to bring you more news at 1 p.m. Central. You can listen to us inside the Podbean app. Um, just download the app. You can listen to the show uh, at 1 o'clock Central. That'll be our weekly roundup number 17. Um, and so, again, join us next Saturday, May 15th at 1 o'clock. You can hear all the news from the past week. Um, and always, we appreciate your support, your support listening to us, but we can. Um, and do ask that you help us out uh, monetarily. So, Adrian, uh, you can let the, the listeners know where they can give us a few dollars. Yeah, listeners, as always, go to our website, blackagendapie.com, and click that Donate tab. And we always remind you that what we're trying to do here is more than just bring you the news, more than just talking and bringing you podcast episodes. We're really about trying to transform our community. We're about trying to implement things that's going to bring forward progression for generations to come. So we need your support to do that. The other thing that we're going to be doing and we have been doing for a few months now is our charity of the month. We're hoping to eventually have some sort of donation to them. But remember, the month of May, we're going to be doing Campaign Zero. Remember, they're an institution where they're trying to figure out how to limit police brutality, uh, trying to figure out how to minimize police violence. So we're really trying to amplify them right now uh, because we got a lot of stuff going on around policing. Uh, remember, we're doing a personal of the week. We're hoping to get more submissions. So let us know of some people that are doing some cool things in your area so we can make sure to highlight them. And then, Devin, tell them about that community calendar we're trying to get going. Correct. So, again, we're trying some new things here to get you all involved with us. Um, the community calendar is going to be created and, and curated with content from, you know, viewers like you. I don't mean to sound like PBS here, but... <laughs> Um, we do would appreciate um, you letting us know what's happening in your communities. And so if you want to send us um, some information about, you know, maybe some interesting events um, or, or parties or anything like that that may be happening, you can email us at info at blackagendapod.com. And again, that's info at blackagendapod.com. And so you can submit events there and we'll help to promote and recognize them either on the show but definitely on our social media calendar and events. And eventually we'll get that onto our website where you can go and just submit the event and it'll pop up and everybody can see it. So uh, again, we appreciate you listening and staying with us before we go. Uh, we also, we always ask that you like, share and follow us on social media. Um, you can find us on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, at Black Agenda Pod, and that's at Black Agenda Pod. Um, you can also find us on YouTube. Just search the Black Agenda Podcast. Um, and so, again, just share this with your friends, family, coworkers, anybody. We're trying to get this out to as many people as possible. Um, so, again, we appreciate you sticking with us. And we'll be back next Saturday, May 15th at 1 o'clock Central uh, to bring you more news. And so, until then, we'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.